morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Chris, the senior pastor here at the church, and just so glad to have you here with us in God's house. And I'll just affirm what Jason said, th- this idea of gathering in community where you live uh, with people who may be your friends, may not yet be your friends, is such a good and rich thing. It reminds us that we are uh, the body, uh, is that passage that Jason read, uh, says. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 5. A disclaimer, today is going to be a tough sermon. This is the, the pinnacle of Jesus' moral teaching in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to talk about relationships. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about uh, the sin and the failure that we all face in our bones. And so uh, that's just a disclaimer. Cons- consider yourself warned. Um, this is a... Uh, this is this is a real and 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 raw teaching of Jesus, and we're going to do our best to let him speak. We're going to read a long passage as well. He has a lot to say. Jesus says, "You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment, and if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say you fool." You will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out. Till you have paid the very last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said of those in ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out your vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven For it is the throne of God or by earth, for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I ask you to help us to hear Jesus today. Lord, even maybe especially when your words make us feel uncomfortable, when they provoke in us uh, emotional responses, Uh, when your words, even as we hear them, may sound to us like acts of aggression, help us, Lord, to see, help us to hear, Jesus, we, we want to let you speak. And so, Lord, as imperfectly as we are able to do so, we, to the best of our ability, ask you to give us wisdom and insight today. We ask you to speak. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today is one of those days. Uh, I had stress dreams last night um, about today. And when I opened my Bible on Monday to begin to look at uh, the text and write my sermon um, throughout the week, I, I thought this this is one of those moments where uh, we have received a gift in our tradition in the Anglican Church, we have a Bible teaching plan that is hundreds and hundreds of years old. And so what that does for people like me is it actually makes the Bible come to me rather than me coming to the Bible and picking and choosing from it like I would food at a Denny's buffet or something like that. Um, because I, I will tell you that for me, uh, these are the, the moments in Jesus' teaching where he holds up that mirror and says things that are provoking and it's hard to hear Jesus sometimes. I think if we're honest uh, about that, we, we would all admit that there are places where Jesus makes us feel, frankly, uh, uncomfortable, where uh, the words of God are challenging, hard for us to hear. So that's what we're going to try to do today. We're just going to try to look at Jesus and let him speak. I'm going to warn you that some of what I say uh, today in an effort to try to be faithful to this text will appear offensive, possibly, to some of you. It may even... Um, be hard or hurtful, and I just want you to know that I, I come and, and, and stand in front of you um, trying to exegete the, the heart of God, and that's a scary and, and sobering thing to do, and so I'm going I'm to do my best today to, to do that, to let Jesus speak. The first movement in this passage, Jesus says uh, four times, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, four times. And if you've been with us over the last number of weeks, you know that chapter five started with Jesus listing off a bunch of blessed are those. And he speaks to all these people and says, blessed are those who, and then fills in the blanks. And then last week we looked at the two, you are statements. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And now Jesus makes four. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you statements. And those are anger. The categories are anger, adultery, divorce, and swearing or oaths. In each instance, Jesus takes a commonly understood saying, something that actually has an origin in the law. It's in the, the Torah, the, the Bible, uh, the early books of the Jewish text. And he says, this is something that you understand. Now I'm going to dig underneath it and show you what's underneath it. Jesus, and I believe the core of God's moral teaching... The core of the moral teaching of Christianity, which comes from the lips of Jesus, actually digs into hard intention, not just technicalities. Uh, the law says, just don't murder him and you're fine. Jesus says, look at what's going on in your heart that would lead you to violence. And Jesus actually goes down into the groundwater of our souls. And frankly, that makes me and it makes probably most all of us feel uncomfortable. Jesus essentially says, don't just do things the way they've always been done. Don't just follow the letter of the law. Don't just let yourself off the hook on a technicality. And the Pharisees, those men, those privileged, uh, educated Difficult men that were always hounding Jesus, they 
had a way of honoring the letter of the law, the rule, but then violating the spirit of it. And Jesus in this moment says to us, beware of our tendency to live in a world of technicalities. Beware of living in a world where we say, I got a little drunk and I kissed her at the bar, but it's not the same thing as adultery. Or I've got a habit that I'm ashamed of, but I can't get out of it because I can't talk to anyone about it and I don't know how to bring it to God. So I'm just going to be less than who I'm supposed to be. A tendency to malign and to curse and to belittle people and think, well, I've never raised my hand and hit a person in violence. Jesus looks at us and says, beware of technicalities. If you find yourself engaging in a kind of mental gymnastics where you're always technically letting yourself off the hook for some behavior, some disposition, some heart thing, I just want you to hear this. Jesus has something to say to you. And it's not a cruel and condemning thing that he has to say. What he has to say is this. Your heart matters a great deal to God. The way that you live matters to God. And you are exactly the kind of person who says and does the things that you say and do. I'm going to say that again. You are, I am exactly the kind of person who does and says the things that I do and say. But here's what I want it to be. When you say something, I want to say you're the kind of person who says something. You're rotten. But when I say something, I want to say, well, it's because I'm stressed. Or it's because I come from a bad family or it's because like I'm Irish or I'm an Italian, like we just deal with anger. And so what we tend to do is want to hold people accountable, but let ourselves off the hook. And what Jesus does in a moment like this, and frankly, it's a moment of utter brilliance as he holds up a mirror and he says, look into the mirror and see what it's showing you. And acknowledge your defensiveness and acknowledge your anger and acknowledge the fact that we don't always know what to do when we see things that we don't want to see. But Jesus says, would you just look in the mirror? So today I just want to ask you to let Jesus say some things to you. And I want you to know that he loves you and I want you to know that I love you. And that all of us, all of us, sinners, people who miss the mark, we're all welcome here. But we're all also invited to grow. So anger, the second movement in the passage, the first of the four. Jesus says, the law says, don't kill people. And if you kill someone, you're going to be liable to judgment. And y'all, that is super, super, super straightforward. He's like, if you act out in violence, then you will be hauled into court. and You're going to have to answer for that act of violence. And sometimes it's justifiable and sometimes it's not. But you're going to go to court. That's where the law ends. That's what the law says in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, don't kill. And if you kill, you're going to have to answer for it. But I say to you, the ethic of Jesus, the under the current ethic is this. I say to you three things. If you are angry, you'll be liable to judgment. Do you see what Jesus does? He, he starts where the law ends. The law says nothing about the motives and the intentions of our heart. The law says nothing about how we look at other people. The law just says don't be extrovertedly violent. 
And if you are, you're going to have to answer for it. Jesus backs all the way up and he says, the intentions of your heart, the anger of your heart. And I'm going to tell you, anger manifests when your will is thwarted. And this happens to us all the time. You oppose my will. I'm angry. Jesus says, when you're angry, pay attention to the fact that you're angry. Don't just let it ride until you act out in violence or feel tempted. Own this and know that there is accountability. Why is there accountability? There's accountability because we belong to one another. There's accountability because we're the family of God, because we're a body and bodies are accountable to their parts are accountable to one another. And Jesus says, essentially, you will have to answer for it to the assessment of God and to the assessment of the people around you. If you live in anger, acknowledge your anger. Some of you are angry and you are reticent or unable or unwilling to acknowledge it. Your anger is a real thing and you have to answer for your anger. And sometimes it's justified and sometimes it's not. And most of the time it's a mixed bag. And then Jesus says, if you act on your anger and you insult another person, you're liable to a council. And all Jesus is saying there is not, there's a body who hears people's insults and then adjudicates. What Jesus is saying is it gets more real when you say things. And that when you're in a body, a family, that people are like, you shouldn't have said that to her. Why did you say that to her? This is where we're called to be truth tellers to one another. We're called to be people who actually say and do the hard thing. And, and here Jesus is simply just pointing out because we belong to one another. If we escalate our anger into insults and words, we have to actually answer for those. God sees it. And so do the people of our lives. And then he says, if you take it a step further and you curse fool, You're answerable to the fire of hell. You're in danger, Jesus is saying. And my grandmother interpreted this very literally. um, And she had a real problem with Mr. T. Uh, Because if you're over 40, you you know, he pity the fool. And she would be like, ah. And I remember once mimicking Mr. T. And she sat me down like, God bless her wonderfully devout Southern Baptist heart. And she was like, you're in danger going to hell right now, son. When Jesus is saying what he's saying, he's escalating and he's saying, if you go from careless words to strategically demeaning and labeling words, you are in a really dangerous place and you need to step back and think about what's going on and ask God for his help and his forgiveness. So Jesus is making a real case here to not just prevent yourself from hurting someone physically. He's pointing at all of the hard intentions and all of the stuff that we have to actually blow through before we get. It's like speed bumps that you just go past. And he's saying, look at the markers. We're accountable. So then what do we do when we actually do say, I pity the fool? What does Mr. T do? What do you do when you actually do marginalize, when you actually do hurt, when you actually do label? Are we just damned to hell? Is that what Jesus is saying? He's saying it's just too late for you. Is that what he's saying? No, it's not what he's saying. And he proves it by saying, if your gift is at the altar and you realize that you have injured someone, that someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go in as far as it is within your power, make it right. And the picture there is really stark. It's a, it's a really, um, provide, he's like, if you have an animal at the altar, just leave it there and go and try to make it right when you know or realize that you have done wrong. So what is Jesus really saying there? 
He's saying if something's wrong, act like something's wrong. When something is off, behave as if something is off. Don't just go through the motions and live in a kind of status quo. And some of us, we've lived our whole lives ignoring the violence that we perpetrate through our hearts and unchecked anger. And when our wills are opposed and our words and we just behave as if it's normal. And we come to church and we say awful things and then we pretend as if everything is fine. And what Jesus is saying is it's not too late for you to stop dead in your tracks and do something about it. Do you understand? This is where he says, go and do something. So how do you find out that something's off? I would say three ways. Number one, God shows you. This happens to me. The more time I spend with the Lord, the more he shows me when things are off and what I've done that I hadn't seen. He, he opens up blind spots. And when I see those things, I have a moral obligation to then take a step and say, I've got to go as far as it's within my power and build a bridge back to her or him. So God will show you. Also, trusted people will show you. People in those neighborhood groups could say, you know, that tone or that thing or that thing you said or that inclination, the anger you carry, the volatility you carry, it's dangerous. So sometimes people will say things to you and then sometimes people you've hurt will work up the courage to say something to you. And I want to say something about the last two, but specifically that third one, but also true for number two, we're not good at conflict. So we rarely do it well. So like when we bring something up, we'll do it imperfectly because we're afraid. We're afraid of how it'll sound. So it comes out weird. And a lot of us have dismissed those criticisms or that, that illumination invitation because we thought, well, you don't say it right. It's like when a woman is objectified and abused and then imperfectly raises her voice to say that she's been abused. Sometimes people go, well, she didn't say that right. So there must not be anything to it. So what we've done is we've silenced people from speaking truth and love. And then we wonder why as the body of Christ, we're not good at hearing hard things and saying true things to one another. And we just revert back to superficiality. Meanwhile, the whole thing's going to hell. Our marriages, our friendships, not to speak of political discourse. It's just all going to hell because we don't know how to hear and Jesus says, I want you to hear. And when you hear, I want you to stop. And I want you to act as if something's wrong. Because I'm telling you, something is wrong. By the time I figure out something's off, it's off. The old ship is sailing out of the harbor. And it's time to actually say, what is it that you're asking me to do? As far as it depends on you, I call you in the name of Jesus to pursue and seek healing and reconciliation rather than ignoring hurts that accumulate. Leave your gift at the altar. Do not ignore elephants in the room. This is how marriages end. This is how friendships end. This is how community is undermined. The second of the four is adultery. Jesus follows the exact same pattern. Adultery, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. Don't have a sexual encounter with someone who's not your, your, your married partner if you're married. So I'm going to speak specifically to married people, but if you ever aspire or wonder to whether or not you'll be married, uh, then, then listen to this. Um, adultery is defined as having a sexual encounter with someone who's not your spouse, your partner. And again, be very careful about technicalities. Well, I didn't have a, I didn't commit adultery. 
If she saw you do it, would she be comfortable with what you did? I think we have to be more than technical. And we're not just talking about acts of sexual intercourse. If you've made out with someone who's not your spouse, I would say to you, you've been guilty of sin and you need to own it and confess it and trust that God can build something back that needs to be built back. If you've engaged in extended or inappropriate in any way, text dialogues or messages on a social media platform, things that you know are inappropriate, you must own those things. By the grace of God, he can bring you back from the brink, but you have to first own and admit that something is off. Don't act as if nothing is wrong when something is wrong. Jesus says, you shall not commit adultery. And then he says, but I say to you that if anyone looks at another with lust, they've already committed adultery. So I want to define lust. Let's put it up on the, on the board. The word for lust in the New Testament is a word for covet. So to lust means to see and desire to consume or to possess something or someone that is not yours. Someone who does not belong to you. And when Jesus does this, what he's doing is he's moving beyond technical terms about a sexual intercourse act with someone who's not your spouse. And he's saying, if you are leering and looking if you are pursuing a desire to consume, and y'all, we consume with our eyes, we consume with our hearts, we consume so many things. We live in such a consumeristic world that this, it's really close to home for all of us. And what Jesus is doing is he's digging under the act itself and he's saying the things that lead you down the road where the act becomes possible matter to God and they should matter to you. I've married like hundreds of people I've officiated at their weddings. I've never come across a couple that on their wedding day says, I'm going to do this for eight years and then I'm going to shipwreck through a reckless sexual act. No one's ever told me that on their wedding day. This is going to be good for a while and then I'm going to do something and it's going to blow the whole thing up to hell in a handbasket. Nobody says that. But what happens is that when we don't tend to the little foxes that ruin the vineyard in a marriage relationship, those things become undermining factors that then lead us. Your sin doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from somewhere. That's what Jesus is saying, emphatically saying. Your sin comes from somewhere, not nowhere. It emerges over time. That body is not yours for the taking. That's why pornography is so dangerous. It's why it hurts people so deeply in ways that they don't even understand. Because what pornography does is it takes a human, like a person with a parent, a person with siblings, a person with hurts and a story, and it makes her or him an object to leer at and look at and consume for self-gratification. Do you see how that's the absolute antithesis of what sexual intimacy is supposed to be? We take that which is supposed to be the fruit of intimacy and we turn it into a consumeristic product. And then we need more of it and more of it. And it needs to be more bizarre, weirder than it was before to achieve the same result. It's a drug, not a human that you're trying to engage at that point. And this is why Jesus puts this emphasis on the covetousness 
of the way that we want to consume people who are not meant to be consumed. The person sleeping in your bed is not meant to be consumed. She is a creature of immeasurable dignity. He is a gift that is an image bearer of God. We have to learn to treat one another this way. And when we don't, all kinds of terrible things happen. And here Jesus is digging deeper. He's saying, I want you to tend to this. So what are we supposed to do when we've coveted sexually? What do we do? How do we face those things? Are we just damned to hell? Is it too late? No. Is he really asking us to gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands? No. Jesus is using Jewish rabbinical techniques. He's using old teaching techniques that employ hyperbole to say, this matters, do something about it. That's what he's saying. So I would say to you that if you find yourself in a compromised space, Jesus is asking you to not behave as if nothing's going on. He's asking you to do something about it. It's not too late. If you are breathing, it's not too late to become the woman or the man that God has called you to be, to move in the right direction versus the wrong one. That's what Jesus is saying. And I'm not going to tell you how to fix your marriage. I, I can't. Nobody can. Because how you got to where you got is really complicated. So how you get out, also going to be complicated. But I will say this. Research suggests that for a couple in a romantic relationship. So I'm going to be very particular right now about married people. For a couple in a romantic relationship to continue to experience intimacy, they must interact in intentionally intimate ways, conversations for a minimum of 90 minutes a week. And I don't just mean arguing about babysitting and talking about who's going to pay the bills or who's going to clean up. Um, those are part of life, but I also mean um, celebrating, burden bearing, truth telling, pain sharing, story making. These things we must do facing one another. And I'm going to tell you To the degree that my wife and I decided to be serious-minded about intentional time, our marriage has been deeply, mysteriously, and wonderfully enriched. It's changed the whole thing because we actually look at one another and talk. You must tend to those relationships. And if you don't, you're in an erosive space. And some of you, the thought of 90 minutes with her or him is like beyond your comprehension. You just think, go ahead and just kill me. Or maybe the murder thing really does come into play. You're thinking like, if I do that, we're back to square one. Rome wasn't built in a day, but it was started in a day. You got to look at one another. You've got to actually decide what am I going to do to actually begin to tend to this thing. And there are a lot of things to do that will prevent adultery. But one of them is actually humanizing and looking at that woman, that man and saying, I choose to believe that there's a reason why we're in this, even if it's really hard. Number three, divorce. At the time that Jesus lived, divorce was a super simple procedure, at least for dudes. Guys could just write it up in a manner that was consistent with the way the rabbis wanted them to write it up. And they would provide her a certificate of divorce. It's like an eviction notice, basically. You couldn't throw her out without saying like, well, at least I'm writing it down. But then you could. And divorce, actually, the word in the in the language implies release. It just means like you're free to do whatever you want to do. Both of them could remarry if they had a valid reason for divorce. So Jesus says that's the law. 
And rather than what he does in the other three, so there are four of these things, we're, we're on the third one, but all four, um, Jesus actually digs underneath. Here's where he just essentially puts a boundary in place that wasn't in place. Jesus actually adopts an uncompromising and unflinching approach to divorce. And what I'm going to say will be tough and painful for many of us. It is for me. But we have to hear Jesus on this. Jesus is saying standard practice, accepted by all, casual divorce. And at the time Jesus lived, Rabbi Hillel, a rabbinical school, Hillel said, if she burns dinner, you can divorce her. He literally said that. Any act of indecency, including the spoiling of a dish, submit a certificate for divorce. Now, women didn't have that same freedom to initiate divorce if he didn't like wash the dishes or, or, or cut the grass. Men, it was stacked. When you look at the teachings of the New Testament, in a world dominated by men, the ethic of the New Testament applies to mutual submission and men and women together. Jesus actually changes the game to say it applies to men, it applies to women. Divorce is painful. It is contrary to the will of God because marriage is meant to emulate or reflect the heart of God toward people where God is faithful. God is steadfast. God is forbearant. And Jesus essentially said then what I think he says now, which is that we treat marriage and divorce too casually. And I know that there are people in this room, friends of mine in this room who have endured divorce. And I know for you, it was actually the only thing you could do. Sometimes acknowledging that something is awful, that it's demonic, that it's painful, doesn't mean you don't have to actually do it. And that's why I think the scriptures do give us some grounds for divorce, unchastity being one, unfaithfulness being one. And there are arguments to be made for others. Uh, and we're going to be doing some theological work on this in a manner that's not unlike our paper on same-sex attraction, our paper on female pastors, uh, our paper on um, abstinence, sexual abstinence outside of marriage. We're going to be doing one on divorce, a white paper, to help us think this thing through in a balanced, faithful, honoring way. But I will say this. I wish that I could preach a whole sermon on this. I have, though. Uh, and so if you want to see a more full treatment of our thinking on this subject as we wait for this paper, um, search in our sermons, uh, Mark 10, 2 through 12. Um, I preached a whole sermon on one of these teaching texts a couple of years ago, and I would commend that to you as a way to dig in. Here's what Jesus is saying. So far as is it within your power, you should try your very best to avoid divorce. That when we fail, when others fail us, sin is present. And when sin is present, we are injured, we're compromised. And as I said, while there are instances where divorce is the only way forward, it still hurts and it's still sin. I wish I could say more, but I am going to say these things about divorce. Number one, I'm going to say five things to you about divorce. Number one, we must realize that since marriage is a covenant before God... We're invited to reflect him to the world and the community around us. Therefore, we must accept that divorce is contrary to the will of God. Even if there are times where it has to be done, it's not God's best. It's not his will. In this sense, divorce is always tied to significant sin of some kind, failure of some kind. Therefore, we must never 
treat divorce as a positive act. Sometimes divorce is the least terrible thing you can do in a horrible situation. It is never a good thing. The danger of a legalistic view where we look for reasons to get out and then try to get out is that we sometimes then gloss over our own failure. Divorce is always the result of tragic human sin. It is not best for everyone involved. I do not believe it is wise to allow our personal feelings, the thought that maybe we didn't find our soulmate to be a reason for divorce. Jesus, frankly, doesn't give us that freedom. He doesn't give us that permission. Now, we can go down that road. But to do so is to step out of line, out of agreement with the teaching of Jesus, the moral teaching of our Savior. Number two, if you have already experienced divorce and have not appropriately grieved your loss, repented of your own part in it, sought healing and change in your life, today is the day for you to do that work. There is healing and forgiveness available to every one of us, but we must seek that healing. To pretend that it was all her fault is not, in fact, true. And what happens to us is that we carry untransformed, untended to pain into our future. And untransformed pain will always repeat itself. Hear me, church. If you do not own your hurt and your sin and your pain, it will repeat itself in subsequent interactions, whether they be romantic or otherwise. And this happens to us all the time. There's healing and restoration available to us as the children of God. That is true. But there are also limitations in front of us when we have divorced in a manner that is inconsistent with Jesus' ethical teaching. Hear this, y'all. We can. We are forgiven. We are welcome to his table, to his family. And yet, God wants us to recognize that our choices do, in fact, follow us. And at Trinity, we believe this is an area where we feel invited to Think about and talk about and submit to the teaching of Jesus, despite the fact that this is not popular, is not easy. If you've been divorced and are already remarried, the best thing for you to do is not to get divorced again to fix the first wrong. I, I remember hearing a, uh, a missionary who went to a polygamous space in the world and he told people they needed to have one wife and he left and he came back and, and, and a chieftain said to him, like, I fixed the problem. I killed the other five and I only have one. That's a true story. There's a lot of danger that's been done in the church when we talk about these things and we don't actually sit with a common sense understanding. If you feel in this moment, I think I actually may have been divorced in a manner that wasn't God's best and you're now married. The best thing you can do is acknowledge that your relationships will always have a level of complexity about them and do your best to be the best version of yourself. You can do that. That's hard. You can do it. Blended families, it's hard. We have to acknowledge the complexity and move forward. That's what Jesus would have us do. Not try to pretend like it didn't happen. So make the most of it if you're remarried. I realize conversations like this are really tough. Limitations are important. And I believe that for some of us, if we've been divorced... The best thing for us, if we deny biblical grounds, is to remain single. Is to learn how to cultivate singleness and say, this is the road that God's asking me to walk. And, and trust for his grace in that very challenging space. 
Number three, if you are single today, married or divorced, single forever or divorced, be deliberate about discerning whether you even want to remarry. Because I believe that we have a lot of work to do in excavating a theology of singleness. The evangelical church, we have sinned against you. Because we've said marriage is a panacea, that it's the perfect thing, that everyone should have it. And that if you don't have it, you're somehow a second class citizen. That would make Jesus a second class citizen. It would make Paul a second class citizen. God have mercy on us for what we've done. And I want to say to you today, if you are a single person in this church and you have felt through my words or the implicit words of this church or the wider evangelical church that you're a second class citizen, I want to repent before God to you and say, I am so terribly sorry. You can reflect the kingdom of God as a single man or woman, whether you've been married or not prior to that. That's God's calling. He wants you to be robustly single as long as you're single. And for some of you, that's going to be for your story, your journey. It's just the truth. Number four, if you desire to marry, endeavor to marry the right person. And I will say that has very little to do with what they look like or the size of their bank account. Some of the most wretched humans I know are stunningly attractive. Just watch the Oscars. Really good looking people can be horrible people. So don't marry for that reason. Rich people can be deplorable. Don't marry for that reason. If you're going to marry, marry the right person. And if you're already married, be the absolute truest partner you can be. That's my nod to that horrible name of that baseball stadium we built up there in (laughs) Cobb County. Be the kind of person likely to stay married. Be the kind of person likely to get married if that's your desire. Because either way, you'll be a better human. Here's where we'll end it. Oath. Jesus repeats the same pattern. And this is what he's saying about oaths. Be the kind of person who doesn't need to add weight to your words with dramatic additions. And so I think that we'll leave it here. This begs this question. Are you a person who is able to be believed and trusted or not? Are you a person that has to add some flair to get people to think you're actually going to do it right this time? And if you're not the kind of person who is able to be prepared or believed and trusted, what are you prepared to do in response to that? That's the thrust of this teaching of Jesus. What are you prepared to do? And it starts with repenting and acknowledging that we're not the kinds of people who can be counted on sometimes. I believe the Lord only ever barters in reality. Denial is not just a river in Egypt, as they say. You need to be honest. I need to be honest. And I'll just say this. This is really grown-up stuff. This is hard. And what Jesus does, and the reason why I love that we're coming to communion now, is that Jesus looks at us angry, adulterous, divorced, people who swear and embellish. And he says to us, if you belong to me, I invite you to come to my table. I invite you to receive medicine. And what that means is there's a way forward for us. Even in our sin, especially in our sin. But for some of us in this room, it's time for you to stop being defensive about your falterings. It's time for us to grow up. Like the epistle said. It's time to move beyond milk to solid things. True things. Hard things.
And if this is your first Sunday, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Just ask the person next to you. It's not normally this hard. If you're able, let's stand together. Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.